As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Okay, so we've wrapped up season nine, all about product journeys, but I, I still had a little bit more content to share. A little more content? We did like 30 episodes. Okay, I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah, so, but after we released two of our episodes, I, I actually landed some follow-up interviews and I got some updates on their stories. Very cool. Okay, so who are we talking about here? So two of my favorite stories, actually. One, Earth Class Mail, the early 2000s startup that was featured on its own reality TV show, starring Ron Wiener, and then uh, Marcus Bullock of Flickshop, the founder who went to prison for eight years as a minor and now runs a successful company, making it easier for families and loved ones to stay in touch with inmates. Fantastic. All right. And next week? Yes. So next week, I'm 
so excited. We are launching season 10 Workplace Confessionals. And don't we have a trailer for that? We sure do. We sure do. What the heck? Let's go ahead and play it now. In season 10 of Rocketship.fm, we turn the microphone on you. That's right. We're making this entire season about your workplace confessions. I'm working right now at a startup company that honestly you've probably never heard of. My confession is really that while I keep a smile on my face, I'm dying on the inside. I'm a seasoned manager who was recently laid off due to COVID downsizing. But I definitely wasn't expecting to deal with this kind of prodding. I don't drink or use drugs, so I can't numb myself out of this I don't even know if you're looking to answer questions like this. And if not, consider this my confession to vent. But at this point, I'm open to any ideas. Please help. From overbearing bosses to pesky coworkers, double standards, management mayhem, toxic cultures, HR nightmares. These are all confessions that you'll hear this season. We've hired voice actors to keep everything anonymous and we're going to learn a lot. We're going to commiserate. We're going to let go of some of these frustrations. So tune in every Thursday for a new episode where we take your confessions and dissect them with an industry expert. Or some celebrity guests, if you will. That's right. That's right. So don't miss out. Make sure you subscribe today. I am pumped for that. This is a season I've been excited for for a while. And gosh, next week we're getting started. All right. Yes. But today, let's give everyone that update on two of our favorite stories. So let's roll the intro. Okay, so let's start with Earth Class Mail. We covered their full 16-year history earlier this year. It was the fourth episode of this season. Can you believe that was all the way back in, in May? Honestly, it feels like freaking ages ago. I hear you on that one. Um, okay, <laughs> let's let's quickly catch up on uh, who they are. Earth Class Mail itself was an interesting concept as it wasn't necessarily a pure software play, right? Yeah, not at all. It required this huge warehouse, very expensive production line equipment um, that would automatically open and scan mail uh, from around the world. Right. They're a service where you can have your mail sent to their warehouse and they'll scan it and digitize it for you. And then they do things like auto deposit checks, search your mail, shred it if you don't want it, right? And at the time, this felt like a very kind of dot-com bubble concept, similar to when we covered Webvan, right? Yeah, and if you're not- Webvan was a dot-com grocery delivery startup that spent a ton of money on massive infrastructure, honestly, much like Earth Class Mail. But Earth Class Mail actually survived. Uh, in fact, they're still going strong despite a long-storied history, uh, changing owners several times. We left off the story in 2017 after Jonathan Siegel had purchased Earth Class Mail after it filed for bankruptcy. So I sat down with Casey Schaefer last year to find out what happened between 2017 and today as it changed hands just one more time. So 2017, as uh, as you guys experienced, there was a there was a transition from the prior owners, Jonathan Siegel and that group, um, into the ScaleWorks Venture Equity Fund, which is who owns uh, Earth Class Mail today. Uh, San Antonio-based company uh, housed in a building in downtown San Antonio. There's five other companies in the fund, and all of us are in the same building. So Earth Class Mail has been operating under under that model uh, since then, um, working hard to grow, working hard to get um, processes and, and, and things built out and really prove out um, this story to the market, right? And figure out who are we selling to? Is this a vertical? Is it horizontal? Um, where does the use case fit and, and who who should be buying it really and how we can best serve that that base of customers? I think that's kind of the best summary of the judgment for sure. 
of the journey, I mean. And they found themselves in a transition period where they were trying to figure out how to scale. I think the early exploration or the early hypothesis of that was this is a business product, right? To really, for us to, for and, and this is interesting, right? You think of things, do you look at it from a business perspective or do you look at it from the customer perspective? And I think looking at it from the business perspective, we, we said for us to make money uh, and for us to grow, you're not going to grow at $10 per account, right? You want some, let's go get, let's go chase whales, right? And so this was a B2, this was thought of as a B2B product. Maybe it's focused at the legal vertical. Maybe it's focused at an accounting vertical. And so we took some shots and some hypothesis at that. Um, but earlier this year, we decided let's take a step back and really one of the great things about working, we're a startup that was founded in 2004. So we've got this benefit that a lot of startups don't have that we've got history, right? Not only do we have revenue and things like that to help fund some things, but we've got some history. So we have a, a, a good analyst in the company who went back and, and studied the, all of that history, right? They looked back at the way, you know, the way back machine. What did our website look like? in this time period, in this time period, in this time period. And I think we figured out that that our times of growth, um, and you got to look at it from a dollar perspective and from a unit perspective, um, people really took to it when we offered it a little bit to everybody, right? There's, there's RVers, there's people who put on a backpack and go crawl across Europe, right? And there's big enterprises that receive tons and tons of paper. And I use this inter this term internally, but I think we're this horizontal use case. I think we can be used by a lot of different people and a lot of different companies. Um, and so that that's what some of this was, was discovering that when we grew well, um, our offering appealed to not just big company, you know, B2B, but it also appealed down in this B2C space. And that, to answer your question in a long-winded way, that's what opened up these new plans. We said, let's let's go back to that and and make sure we're we're providing value to some folks in that um in that price range. So now they're a business for the people. Uh, they have tiers for consumers all the way up to enterprises. But then they had to answer the hardest question a company has to ask itself. How much do we charge for this? What we sort of figured out is is individuals, if I said if, if I said, Michael, how much mail do you get in a month? You don't know. Like that's that's not there's that value, that value metric for pieces of mail didn't matter to those buyers. So what matters, but if I said to you, how many people in your house to get mail? You know the answer to that question. And so at those at those bottom three plans, um, we said you get to those users, based on our data, you get unlimited mail, right? I think it's 250 pieces of mail a month, which to those users, that is virtually unlimited, right? Um, and, and the value metric is recipients. So at the smallest plan, it's one recipient. You by yourself, th that person can receive mail. If you need five, you go to the second. And if you need more than that, you, that's when you start to creep up. And really now at that point, you're talking about how much mail do you get? And it becomes more of that B2B offering. So now they have a new pricing model and they've taken their classic offering and are making it available to the average consumer. So then I asked them about the mail sorting, right? They had these huge warehouses. How much of that process has changed or, you know, was it able to be automated since their founding over a decade ago? I think our discovery and I think they talked about you talked about this in that episode. Um, mail is so heterogeneous. It's so different sizes and shapes and colors and all the things 
you there's not really robots that can do it and we've it's it's huge at the end of the day these are and again we've we've refined the process we've bought some equipment like all those things but it is still at the end of the day it's humans getting envelopes cutting them open pulling the paper out running it through a scanner and then repackaging it now there's there's barcodes and technology and all the things that that run that system behind it but at its core it's still that um we recently bought we made a fairly fairly sizable capital expenditure um that we'll be rolling out here in the next month that'll change some of that like it, it's taking one of our processes and all of our customers see this in their in their images when the mail gets a, delivered every day we put a barcode sticker manually human piece by piece by piece we put a barcode sticker on every piece of mail humans do this right um we've this piece of equipment will spray that on um and do that in a much more automated process um but that's only the entry that's the beginning of stage right well i guess some things never change yeah so I'm glad they're doing so well. If you want to learn more about Earth Class Mail or how you can receive your mail digitally, check out earthclassmail.com. And after the break, we're going to catch up with Marcus Bullock of FlickShop uh, about what he's been up to since our episode last aired. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So now we're going to catch up with Marcus Bullock, who, if you remember, spent eight years starting as a juvenile in adult maximum security prison. A friend of mine and I, we approached a man sleeping in his car, pulled out a gun, demanded the keys to his car, and sped off. That decision landed me in front of a judge with my mom and my sister standing just a few feet behind me as they listened to me get sentenced to eight years in adult maximum security prisons. When he got out, luckily, he landed a job at a paint shop and found out he had a knack for entrepreneurship. Customers would come into the store and they would ask me, hey Marcus, how much do you charge to paint my kitchen? I'm like, well, Ms. Johnson, we don't paint kitchens. We sell you the paint so that you can paint your own kitchen. A light bulb went off and I launched a painting company that became the conduit between the customers in the paint store and the painters who needed consistent work. After a year or so, I left that paint store. We grew our contracting company. And since then, I have hired tons of other returning citizens. Now, he stayed in contact with a lot of his friends from prison, and they would constantly ask him for pictures of his life on the outside. But sending them a picture wasn't as easy as sending a text message. So he had the idea for FlickShop, which allows families and loved ones to easily send pictures on postcards to their loved ones in prison, allowing them to stay closer in touch. So in catching up with Marcus, because his time in prison inspired FlickShop, I wanted to learn more about how he felt about the justice system. So I asked him why he felt, as a juvenile, he was sent to maximum security adult prison. Um, I was black. I got, I got sentenced to 23 years to life. 
So, um, like I said, in 23 years of life, my judge suspended 15 um, years for my carjacking, suspended, um, no, no, suspended 13 years, I think, for the carjacking. Somehow he, like, suspended a, bu- a bunch of suspended time for one or two or three crimes. I got a um, use of a firearm and a commission of a felony, which was a mandatory three years. It was like the robbery was, they gave me five years for a robbery because we um, cause we took his wallet. We They gave us um, three years. No, two years for the robbery. Yeah, two years for the robbery, three years for the for the firearm, and three years for the carjacking. So it was a total of 23 years with 15 suspended, left me with eight years to serve. And then I had to serve 10 years on probation. And we talked a little more about that super predator rhetoric. So the reality of it is, is that um, black people, black especially black boys during that era were getting sentenced in interesting ways as a result of um, some rhetoric that was politically um, being smeared across the TV, calling every person that committed a crime that was under the age of 18 a super predator. And yep. so I got sentenced to eight years with, I got sentenced to 23 years with 15 suspended. Um, and I had to serve 10 years on probation after serving eight years in prison. And then you discuss some of the barriers he faced after being released. I mean, you know, they say that uh, after returning from prison, there are over 40,000 collateral consequences that will impact a returning citizen as they work to try to figure out how to create their own successful reentry path after their incarceration. I couldn't document all of the barriers that I had to run up against, but I will tell you that there were a ton of them around employment and around housing. The same rhetoric that was like, on, a, on, on Channel 5 at nighttime at 10 p.m. was not only there to scare, like, the neighbors, right, but it was their neighbor, the neighbor's children as well, and I was a result of that. And so it took some time to come home and repair um, those relationships. It took time to come home and repair my banking relationships, my credit relationships. I had to go find a Social Security card. I had to go find a birth certificate, right? Um, I didn't have any health insurance. Uh, most neighborhoods, they were preventing me from, you know, living in their community. I still can't, you know, sit on the PCA in my son or daughter's school, right? And, and and these are things that, you know, are going to outlive me, potentially. And a big part of his story is this knack for entrepreneurship that has catapulted him from prison uh, to being a guest at the White House uh, just a couple of years ago. And I asked him, who were his mentors along the way? My mentors were Danny B, Spider, Andy, and those were all folks that were just in D-building with me. You know, we talk about the folks that was in C building with me and E building with me. And these were the men that incubated my life during a time where I probably could have turned out to be a lot more reckless than I did, right? I, I, I was completely drowning in despair and hopelessness when I was in prison. I mean, I was a kid that went from wanting to go to prom and wanting to go to homecoming with my girlfriend to now like having to battle, you know, major prison beefs and, you know, commissaries and, you know, lockdowns. Like that was like my new struggle. And these were the men that were there to be able to not only point me in a in, in, in direction that said, Marcus, you're going to go home one day. Because remember, I got sentenced to adult maximum securities, which means that I had to live in some of the state's worst prisons, right? And these were, um, you know, before I got there, presumptively some of the world's worst people, right? Because they were the world's, the country's worst prisons, right? This was native to the definition of how we think about prison, right? And and then I get there and I realize like these are real men and they love me 
and they wanted to make sure that they protected me to say, look, I'm not going to allow you to go out there and go get in that fight. Because if you get in that fight and somebody pulls out a knife and then you have to pull out a knife to protect yourself, now you're going to get 25 years and you know what the origination of this conversation was? A honey bun. Are you really going to stab somebody up for honey bun? The reality of it is, is that dude is willing to go to war over honey bun because he got 75 years and he's 30 years old. So unless he plan on living 106 years old, he's going to die living in the center block walls. Marcus, you got eight years. You're going to go home and you're going to be 23. Like, dude, you know what I mean? Like, get your life together. You know what I mean? And like, they would literally push me in the cell, right? Lock the door behind me. You get chicken cream and throw a temper tantrum all you want like a teenager. But I'm not going to allow you to run your time up. And, and these were the men that helped me understand what emotional intelligence was like. How do you navigate between people who need you to be able to turn on your chameleon-like um, you know, way of, of, of speaking and articulating yourself versus, you know, hanging back with the homies like, yeah, nah, man, what we about to do later on this afternoon? Because now I'm able to go into the paint store and talk about a crimson, a crimson tide red and talk about the substrate that needs to go on before the paint, you know what I mean, goes on. And now I talk about the trying time and understanding the between interior and exterior and polymers and how, right? The only way that I was able to navigate that kind of, um, that kind of environment that typically is agnostic to, to the most of like the colleges and universities that you'll go to is that I lived in prison where you had to have emotional intelligence. You had to learn how to communicate with others in balance. You had to learn how to be able to navigate conversations with one person and a CEO and a major. And this CEO was different than that CEO. And this person who got 100 years is that different than that person that got 20 years. And knowing how to be able to not only navigate between those conversations, but inject yourself inside of the conversation and lead and or dominate the conversation when the time is right. Or you know, understanding how to introduce an offering to someone, right? You know how hard it is to introduce an offering to someone in prison without having some type of negative connotation attached to it? So, so you know, having that, that those kinds of, that kind of mental gymnastics, navigating through that allowed me to be able to walk into a paint store and be like, this is it. So then the conversation moved to FlickShop and how they're doing today. So, you know, we have what over, I think over 180,000 registered users on the platform. Um, over 80,000 of them have shipped multiple postcards. We shipped almost 600,000 postcards to people in over 2,700 facilities around the country. And this is allowing us to be able to create um, streams and pathways of communications, not only for just family members, but for law offices who want to be able to update their clients on their latest appeal or the, the, the nonprofit organization that wants to advocate for people that are in solitary confinement. Even a fair chance hire like Slack, um, who wanted to leverage our technology to let people in California know about their fair chance hiring practices, who, who immediately onboarded three people coming straight out of Pelican Bay making over $100,000 a year. You're talking about impact, right? Like these guys are coming out of Pelican Bay serving, you know, decades, right? And now they're working at Slack. You know what I mean? Like the Silicon Valley unicorn. And to be able to know that folks are leveraging our technology the same ways that, you know, people leveraging the Facebooks of the world and the Instagrams of the world, the Snapchats and the TikToks to be able to create these modes of, uh, of communication between the masses. Um, we're just doing it in one of the underserved communities. Um, and we're excited about the direction that the company's going in today. So I wanted to know where this growth was actually coming from. Well, I promise you, this is happening so organically. I have no idea, right? I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I think I know what I'm doing. Every day I feel like I know what I'm doing. I come back and find it. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? You know, I mean, because we had users who were starting to use our technology to send postcards to people in nursing homes. 
would have never thought that that was going to happen. All right, you know what I mean? We had um did this um last summer. We had people that started to use postcards to send um post use FlickShop to send postcards to their kids while they were in a sleepaway summer camp. Right? Like these were use cases that we couldn't have thought about. We couldn't have prepared for. And so while we're meeting these new users on our justice reform side that you know want to be able to connect um that you know the, their local aclu offices to free legal defense services again there was no way for us to be able to prepare for that so now what we what we focus a lot of our time on doing is ensuring that not only are we ensuring that the family connection is going but we like to meet um those folks in the corporate social responsibility offices at, at corporations like i want to know what is your corporate social responsibility strategy how are you being thoughtful about bringing in new hires and what's your what's your HR strategy about bringing people that have a felony on their record or how are you being thoughtful about um, leveraging other consultants that have that are that are justice system involved to be able to contribute to ways that you can think about injustices that are typically probably happening as a result of some policies that your corporation has had um, instituted for, for for probably more than decades right and so as we think about you know leveraging us as a resource for those ways I think that these are the the use cases that we just we couldn't have prepared for. Now, his mission is to better the lives of the more than 2.3 million people currently incarcerated in the United States. And he's looking at how this communication can create a long-term effect by reducing recidivism. A U.S. Sentencing Commission report on recidivism among federal prisoners released on January 24, 2019, showed that nearly 64% of prisoners who had been convicted of violent offenses were arrested within eight years, compared to about 40% of those convicted of nonviolent offenses. One of the things that we want to be able to do with the, the in, in the prison space is to be able to make sure that people are getting exactly what they want or they need while they're there, in hopes that that's going to be the the, the largest contributor to uh, reducing recidivism that we've seen in the past, right? We understand that family activation and support during incarceration typically leads to successful reentry, right? Now, how do we do that at scale? And, and if we do that at scale, then one, we reduce prison populations, which is a massive, you know, massive, huge feat for us. Um, and one of the goals that we are, we work to be able to, you know, to, to, to reach the milestones on. But also, um, what we also have learned is that there are organizations and businesses that really do need support in their missions, right? And so while we are intentional about building a revenue generating tool that allows for these organizations and businesses to learn and evolve and spend less cash on the, those people on processes that typically resulted in a bunch of folks sitting at a table or a bunch of desks stuffing some envelopes, purchasing a bunch of post, you know, pieces of postage and, you know, you know, purchasing paper and ink and all of that. Like these are processes that we have become, that become prehistoric in the way that we do business and especially in the way that we communicate. And so if we're allowing these other businesses and organizations to leverage our technology to do that, then again, back to my original mission, we reduce recidivism um, because we're introducing other resources, knowing that these key resources are going to be major contributors to successful successful release, but also um, we have found ways to be able to um, build a successful business um, by not relying on uh, the families, which has been typically the predatory way that folks have done business in this space, um, but, 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 but adding a service line to the service providers um, that should be focused on um, doing the same thing we want to do, which is, again, reduce services. We'll have more from Marcus after a quick break.
So one of the key pieces of Marcus's story was his time after prison and the struggle he faced in finding his first job. In fact, it was only a loophole in the paperwork that allowed him to land that job at the paint store. The application said, have you been convicted of a felony in the last seven years? And it had actually been eight years since his conviction, so he's able to say no. And since recidivism was such a key focus for him, he made it actually a part of his business model. A success story, our entire model is, is hiring people at the prison. Right. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a job, you know, coming out of prison because of my felony. I finally got one because uh, application said, have you been convicted of a felony within the last seven years? Right. That was my that was my entrance into the workforce. And it was only as a result of that comp. Now, <clears throat> if we're being intentional at Flick Shop uh, um, about bringing on just as incredible talent, because I promise you, I'm not a unicorn. I ain't an anomaly. It's nothing special about me, right? Like, I am a hustler, and I'm tenacious. I'm going to go get it, and I won't lose. The reality of it is is that there's 600,000 people that are being released from prison every year, and I promise you the vast majority of them have the same same exact mindset and probably skill set. Like, I got a ninth-grade education. My last grade computer was a ninth grade, right? (coughs) Excuse me. I don't have, you know, when I came home, I was 23 years old and couldn't even explain what had been over the last decade of my life, right? I didn't come from, you know, I didn't even, I don't have the story of going to, going to prison and then, you know, coming home and enrolling in some, you know, illustrious university and graduating summa cum laude. And I didn't have that, I didn't have that story, right? This is like really just hustle and grit. And what it proves is that, that the, the talent is definitely there. It's just that the access is just not. And if we're being very thoughtful about creating pathways for success for these men and women, and we want to be able to contribute to this, then I promise you, bring on some of those men and women who I promise you will be the most loyal, hardest working people. Like, ain't nobody trying to mess up no gig after 10 years in prison. you like, man, look, I got a job. I ain't, I'm going to work for you forever. Good luck to me. Right? You know what I mean? I'm staying, I'm coming in early. I'm staying late. You know what I mean? I'm trying to figure out how to do everything I possibly do because I want to ensure that I'm adding value. I've been working for 35 cents for the last 10 years of my life. Now I have an opportunity to contribute to your corporation, giving me purpose and meaningfulness in my own life. But also I have something that I'm able to be able to take back to my own home and help provide for the same people that have tipped, probably been looking out for me for that decade. Right? The last thing I want to do is trick that up. So, um, you know, they, they come to work, they show up, you know, and they go crush it, right? And then when, when I one of the things I and this this is the thing I think the big thing, um, the big takeaway from all of that. And I think that once the, once folks that have been to prison learn how to be able to to master a skill set, I mean, you're talking about the kings and queens of the pivot, right? They only know pivot, right? And so they are not they're they're able to to move through your organization and company adding immense levels of value that most won't be even willing to try to learn simply because they don't believe that they have the propensity to pivot the way that folks that are coming out of a sale naturally have to do every single waking moment of their days of their lives while they're there. Um, that think it's a massive opportunity that folks are missing out on, um, and and it's an untapped an untapped resource uh, that I think that is going to be a, a major trend. Um, especially over the next couple of years as justice reform policies become um, a hot topic. And finally, you discuss his partnership with John freaking Legend through the Flick Shop Angels program. You know, as a, with a partnership uh, with John Legend and his foundation, we were able to launch Flick Shop Angels that gives the community the ability to band together and purchase Flick Shop credits 
uh, that we give to children with incarcerated parents, allowing them to send as many selfies as they want to mom and dad completely for free. Um, again, we know that family connectivity is going to be the genesis of a successful reentry plan. And we don't want these failed relationships to turn into anything more than just mom and dad being gone for, for, for a few months or years. If we can be able to help contribute to that and uh, don't allow for, don't, don't, you know, force these children to have to find pathways to communicate with their mother and dad, then we can see stronger relationships, um, empower families. So we, I mean, that's one of the places where I beg people, please consider becoming a Flick Shop Angel at FlickShopAngels.com um, so that children can send as many of those amazing postcards to their mom and dad for free. Man, what a way to end this season. If you want to learn more about Flick Shop and the Flick Shop Angels program, head over to F-L-I-K-S-H-O-P.com. That's FlickShop.com. And coming up next week. That's right. We played the trailer earlier, um, but we'll have Ben Foster on for our first episode of season 10 workplace confessionals. And I don't know, it's, it's going to get juicy. Thank you so much for listening to rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.